uh, invite Dr. Beck to come. He is, I'm sorry, I, he uh, is from the University of Calgary. He is a physician and has a PhD in biophysics. I, I'm really pleased that he has come and agreed to uh, make a presentation about water fluoridation today. And uh, would you um, join me in welcoming Dr. Beck to, to make his presentation. Thank you, Neil. I'm told that I have to stay here and talk directly into this thing. So uh, I, I prefer to walk around when I talk to groups, but I won't be able to do that. Let me start, though, by, by thanking you for having me and thanking Neil for the introduction. And uh, I, I want to say also, I want to offer a disclaimer because you know we live in an evil world with all kinds of conflict of interests in in uh, government and, and particularly medicine and so on. So I want to tell you that I'm not making any money from this, and, and I'll, I, I'll, I will mention a, a book I'm a co-author of, and I'm not getting those royalties. I'm donating them to the Fluoride Action Network. So I'm, uh, I'm clean. You can listen to me. And all I ask of you really is an open mind, because I know you've been told for decades now that fluoridation of the public water supply is a good thing, and anybody who's against it is either a communist or an alien trying to poison us or is out of his or her mind. Now, what I would like to do to con to, to is to take advantage of your open minds and give you new information. I am against fluoridation, and the reason I'm against fluoridation of the public water supply is I will tell you, hopefully within the next 20 or 25 minutes. And um, if there is anything you want to me to offer more detail on or more evidence for or something, then you ask me in the question period. Um, if you want to attack me, okay, but try to do it <laughs> gently. Because I'm very safe, sensitive now because over the last three days I've gotten involved in a blog about fluoridation and, and I've been called a quack and a liar and all kinds of stuff and I'm not used to that. I think in, the bloggers call that flaming. <laughs> and uh, I think we can do better. We can learn from one another. If we, and so that's, that's my pitch. And what I want to do, I, I'd like to, to eliminate the history on this slide you see in front of you because of the limitations of time. But if you have any questions about how we got started with fluoridation and why it's so difficult to get a hearing on the issues and so on, you can bring that up in the question period. So I want to deal with these three questions. This is the crux of the matter. Is it effective? Because it's put in our water for the purpose of reducing the incidence or the occurrence of dental caries or cavities. So obviously the question, is that true? Does it really do that? The second question I'd like to deal with is, is it safe? Because we know that fluoride, as many other things, in high enough doses is toxic. We want to know whether the fluoridation using fluoride in the way we do in public water supplies is safe or not. 
That's the, more, the most complicated of these three questions. The third question, is it ethical, is very, very simple. In fact, let me go out of the, uh, well, no, I'll come back to it. I was about to go out of order because I want to be, a, this question, is it ethical, is very simple for anyone to answer. You don't need to be a dentist or a physician or a scientist to answer that question. So here's, here's something on, on, on the question of efficacy. Does it really work? Which doesn't require any kind of sophisticated understanding of, of, of the statistics or of the sciences involved. But this is a graph taken from data gathered from the World Health Organization, which is a group which advocates fluoridation, uh, of 18 countries and their, their history from 1960 or so or 62 to 2004 or so as to, to what the, the prevalence of dental caries is. Or this DMFT on the side means um, the, this is the decayed, missing, or filled teeth. So that, that's uh, what uh, measures the, the incidence of, of cavities. It's gone down in all 18 of those countries. Six of them are fluoridated. Twelve are not. And there's essentially no difference. They're mixed up in there. It's not that all of the ones that are fluoridated are down at the bottom. That's not the case. So that's one piece of evidence which is not a sophisticated study but has a good degree of validity and it's easy to understand. Now... The, I won't uh, give you a lot of references, but I do want you to, to believe me when I say that what I'm telling you is based on research, on scientific investigations published in peer-reviewed journals. So that has a certain amount of, of validity to offer, though sometimes mistaken conclusions get through peer review and so on, but that's the best we can do in science. And we also have to keep in mind that science develops all the time. So if everybody in the world thought fluoridation was wonderful 20 years ago, things have changed since then. And in science, we reevaluate every day or every hour. So that, that was just a one, one study. Now, here's uh, uh, the results of that study in the previous slide. You see the um, – it gives you – the, the results, uh, the, there's 3.4 decayed, missing, filled surfaces, not teeth, but surfaces. You see, and here's a, here in case you forget what I said, decayed, missing, and filled tooth surfaces. And when they looked at these thousands, tens of thousands of, of people examining for differences where there was not non fluoridated water and where there was fluoridated water, they come up with a saving, that is there were 0.6 tooth surfaces out of about 128 tooth surfaces, fewer decayed where there was fluoridation. Now, the proponents argue that that's a benefit. Well, if it's true, then yes, that's a benefit. But it's a very small benefit, and it's not like the 60% or so benefit that they tell, like to tell you about. It's some small fraction of 1% of, of, of benefit. So you have to balance that against the possibility of the harmful effects I'll tell you about in a few minutes. 
And speaking of minutes, I better take a quick look. Okay, we're doing all right. Now, in... uh, that former study was done in the United States. This was done in Australia, and it was a similar uh, kind of investigation dealing with two surfaces, and they found just point two to down to point up to point three two surfaces difference in the two groups, possibly interpreted as a benefit of fluoridation. But you have to admit it's a, uh, almost negligibly small. Uh, benefit if it exists. Now, in Australia, there was a similar study done, and uh, here there was found no significant difference in permanent teeth. And uh, on looking at two th- surfaces again between children who had drunk fluoridated water all those lives and those who drank non-fluoridated water all their lives. So uh, that. Um, Let's see, there was another comment I wanted to make here. Well, it'll come back to me. Here, there, um, there's a lot, a lot been said by proponents of fluoridation, and in particular, in my experience, members of city councils who are, who are very concerned about the well-being of their citizens, uh, a lot of concern about poor children. And in many U.S. cities, there's, there are huge uh, differences among poor, poor children or children of low-income families and other children in terms of the, the prevalence of, of cavities. And that's a, that's a perfectly correct and humane concern. The issue is, is fluoridation going to help those poor children? And because that question has come up so frequently uh, in terms of people who are responsible for, for deciding on fluoridation, yes or no, uh, it's been looked at specifically to see whether, whether uh, it is protective for, for, in particular for children of low family incomes. And... Uh, what was found in these investigations is that as a dependency on fluoride in the drinking water, there was no difference among the different children from different levels of family income. Whereas if you look at the incidence of fluoride as related to family income, the, the incidence of, of uh, caries goes up quite strongly as the family income goes down. Now, we can go back to that first graph I showed you of the 18 countries and say, well, if the non-fluoridated countries were getting better with respect to caries just as well as the fluoridated one, what was doing it? Well, we're not sure. We don't know exactly, but there are some very likely possibilities. In particular, a better diet and better dental care and better education and a rise in, in, uh, in one's uh, level of life in terms of income and so on that has come about over those decades so that parents now have time to watch their very young children brushing their teeth and making sure they do it well and spit out if it's, if it's fluoridated toothpaste and taking them to the dentist and so on. So those are factors that haven't, as far as I know, been systematically investigated but are likely expl- explanations. But clearly it's not, the fl- it's not been the fluoride 
So, and here, just in going back to one of those types of studies uh, that I mentioned, the epidemiological studies, what happens if you have a fluoridated population and you stop fluoridating? Now, the American Dental Association, the, Canadian, the Centers for Disease Control in the United States, and, and their satellite <laughs> proponents of fluoridation will say, oh, don't do that. Cavities will go up sky high. Well, here are four four different countries where where systematic investigations on that question have been done, and these are not the only studies. And it just doesn't. That's not what happens. Now, we're going to um, to um, go into the problem of safety. Our toxicity. That, now, the proponents don't like for me to, to refer to that as the question toxicity because it makes it sound like fluoride might be nasty. And um, so, when we do think about these uh, these relationships, I'm going to tell you about in a, in a moment. We we should keep in mind these three numbers. That the in general the fluoridation is done for, at a part at one part per million of uh, fluoride in the public water supply, so that's one number to keep in mind one part per million. The other, another is that the the concentration in the mother's milk it varies somewhat, but it's. Uh, from about 0.004 parts per million to maybe 0.025 parts per million. And that concentration in mother's milk is a result of, well, the mammals and their precursors have been biochemically developing over at least the last 30 million years, and it's been tested. Now, we can't say what evolution had in mind when it made mother's milk so low in fluoride, but it behooves us to consider that it may not be good to give infants and children um, fluoride at, at, a, at one part per million. And the third is that the, the maximum contaminant level, that's a technical term used by toxicologists and, and water safety people and so on, but what it means is the maximum level of some substance that you will allow in, in, um, in something that's ingested, in this case water. And here we have that maximum contaminant level set by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the United States, uh, at four parts per million. And uh, keep that in mind when I tell you about uh, these, these effects. Because one of the criticisms that uh, we get, we opponents of fluoridation often get, is, oh, you're telling us about toxicities that occur at very high exposure to fluoride uh, that doesn't apply because we keep it down at one part per million. Well, that forgets two things. It forgets uh, uh, the factors I mentioned a little bit about varying sensitivity and subsets of the population that are particularly sensitive to certain kinds of harm, and also to the very important fact that concentration in the tap water is not dose, and it's not dosage. So what possible harms have we come across? And keep in mind that in most in countries, generally the countries that fluoridate, like Canada and the United States, uh, 
very little investigation has been done on the association of certain kinds of, of uh, harms to human beings with uh, fluoride in, in their water supply. But in other countries, it's been done, and particularly in places where naturally occurring fluoride might be quite high, in particular India and China, where some studies have been done. But these possible harms include these systems. The brain, in terms of neurological development, the bone, in terms of two things, a carcinoma, and uh, that is a cancer of the bone, and in terms of fractures. And uh, the thyroid system, uh, the, there's a clear association, for example, of goiter, which is a result of the thyroid hypofunction in, uh, in areas where the water is fluoridated. The incidence of goiter is higher than in non-fluoridated areas, and we have to look into that. And we have, in the case of effects on the thyroid, uh, we have the, uh, uh, a great deal of information now about the, the, the mechanism of that, that information, of that effect. And um, then there's also effect on the reproductive system, and we'll come back to that, and the kidney and teeth, which is the one toxic effect that even the proponents agree is considerable effect. We have a, a, in the United States, if we include both fluoridated and non-fluoridated areas, and they have a, over two-thirds of their population uses fluoridated water. If we include both fluoridated and non-fluoridated, according to the Centers for Disease Control figures, there 42% of children have dental fluorosis, and I'll describe that in a moment. And there are other systems that are affected. Now, in case of the, of the brain, we have, you know, different ways of approaching this scientifically, and one way is to do studies on animals, mammals, for example, with physiological similarities to human beings. And we have, there are now over 40 of such studies on animals which show that fluoride is associated, ingestion of fluoride is associated with damage to the brain. Now, in the, those are animal studies. We also have human studies. In particular, there are now 23 studies, and these come largely from China, where, where the, the circumstances for investigating this in humans are particularly advantageous for the researchers because there are villages, for example, with whose water differs very much in terms of how much fluoride is in it, and yet they're the, their age distribution, their their kind of employment, their diet uh, has been the same for centuries and, uh, in both villages. So essentially the, the only thing we can recognize that's different is how much fluoride is in their water. So those are important studies. And, and uh, in general, there, it has been shown that there's an association with fluoride of down to 1.9 parts per million. Now, keep in mind, that's not very high, uh, not very, very much higher than, than one part per million we'd have here. And we usually, toxicologists will, will give us a, a factor in, in determining a margin of safety. They'll use a factor of 10 to account for rev variation within a human population. And if they're using data from animal studies, they'll use a factor of 100 
to allow account for both variation among hu- the human beings and the variation among species. So this is this is very close, and and the 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 difference in uh, in IQ uh, has is up to five about five to ten IQ points. Now I don't know what IQ is, but I do know it is related to success in life and how you pass your exams and so on. So it does have to do with the development of the neurological system, and this deserves further study. And again, it's not been done in any fluoridated uh, uh, countries. Now, uh, here's some other tissues, and dental fluorosis I'll come to in a moment. Um, the, uh, yeah, the bones... Uh, the, the most investigated thing have been frac- fractures, and, and I'll come to that. Uh, but there's also th- things that we ought to look into. We don't much much about. In the United States, for example, for example, there are about 40 million people with a diagnosis of arthritis of one form or another, and it is seems to be the case. And again, we can't. We we don't have very strong, clear evidence. It seems to be the case that fluoride can is associated with symptoms that are identical to the sim- early symptoms of some kinds of arthritis. So it's quite possible that a large number of people are affected in this way in a way that's not recognized, and most physicians aren't even aware of this. So we really need to study this. Then the endocrine system, uh, the pineal, pineal gland is apparently is what controls the onset of menarche, the, the beginning of sexual maturity in girls. And it has been observed, even in those first badly done studies, like in the, in, in the United States of efficacy back in the 1940s, it was observed that the, the, that the girls in the fluoridated city were, had menarche, or the beginning of menstruation, five months earlier than other girls. In the case of men, there apparently is an association of fluoridation with, with low sperm count. Um, in the case of the, the thyroid gland, as I've mentioned, we, we have a good bit of physiological inf- and biochemical information on this particular case. But it can be mentioned that in Europe in the 30s and 40s, th- fluoride was actually given to, by physicians to patients who had hyperthyroidism, that is an overactive thyroid system, to suppress the thyroid action. And then the question of bone cancer in, in young men, I'll, uh, okay, I better, I hope I'll come back to it, or you can ask me about it in the question period. But here are examples of dental fluorosis, which some proponents say that this is, uh, has, is not important, it's just a cosmetic effect. But can you, can you imagine, you know, a 14-year-old girl with, with, with teeth, like this or like this, who isn't affected in terms of her life and her happiness by that. And it costs about $1,000 per tooth to correct this. So uh, it's, it's, a, a, it's, again, something we have to, to, um, to avoid if we can. 
Now, here's a, a case. Since uh, dental fluorosis is such an obvious indicator of overexposure to fluoride, this group used that as an indicator of exposure and, and compared it to the incidence of fractures, and they found a linear correlation between the severity of dental fluorosis and the incidence of bone fractures. Now, let me skip this, and I'll, I guess since we're, I'm in my last five minutes, so I'll have to, <laughs> to, to skip those two. But these are there's just a list of, of effects that occur at different, that have been observed to be associated with levels of fluoride in the water, starting at 0.9 parts per million and going up to 1.8. I'm sorry that got cut off, and some of the manipulations that we had to do to get this slide presentation going on. But um, I, I can't give you enough time to look at that. But the point is that some of these harmful effects where the associations have been observed are observed with concentrations in the water that are very comparable to the concentrations that are deliberately used in fluoridation in North America. Now, on the question of ethics, I said this was easy, so I just need 30 seconds for this. Do I have that? <laughs> okay. First of all, fluoride, we use in, in North America and in Lethbridge in particular, we use hexafluorosilicic acid or hydrofluorosilicic acid. It's the same thing, which is uh, scrubbed from the, from the uh, missions and, and producing phosphate fertilizer and carries with it contaminants like arsenic and lead. And um, we use that to put in the water. And it's never been tested for human safety. It's never been approved by an official body in the United States or in Canada. And it's uh, given to us without our informed consent. In terms of medical ethics, informed consent means that you've had a discussion with a qualified professional who's obliged to tell you why this medicine is being given to you and what its side effects might be. And you must be able to ask questions and decide for yourself on the basis of those answers whether you will take this medicine or not. And by the way, fluoride in, in courts in Canada and the United States has been recognized to be legally a medicine. So what's happened when your city council puts in your water is they're treating you in a way that the medical doctor can't even treat you without seeing you, without asking you, and without monitoring the effects. So, uh, and, and again, no control of dosage. So, another, in summary, I'll just tell you that what the answers to my three questions are. All of them are no. And, and, I, and I don't deny that there is controversy over this. I don't see how anyone who does look at the scientific literature can say that I'm wrong with those first two answers. And I don't see how any rational human being could say that I'm wrong in the third answer. But, but there is controversy, and the way we want to resolve the problem is by both sides and everybody in the middle opening their minds and listening to one another and being honest about it. And uh, uh, that that's, uh, seems to be a lot to ask of the proponents, but we must insist. And uh, if you want more information, 
here are two websites you can use. One is that's uh, the Fluoride Action Network, and Second Look both maintain updated uh, bibliographies, which are categorized, so that if you want to know an effect on the brain, you look under brain, and you, you know, you'll find uh, the original research there. And uh, if you're looking for conspiracy theories or, or reasons for people doing this to you and so on, uh, I recommend Christopher Bryson's book called The Fluoride Deception. It's meticulously documented in a very interesting book. And the, the last book is the one that partly prompted my initial disclaimer. Uh, two colleagues and I have written a book that just came out in, in October of this year. It's probably, I think, the newest one dealing with the science of the issue. And um, you can find that or parts of it on the Fluoride Action Network website as well. And you can ask your public library to get a few copies. And, uh, and you can read them. So... Um, I guess I'm over. I'm done.